This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. When Billy Bean decided to employ a recent Harvard graduate to use advanced statistical analysis to build a championship Major League Baseball team, he changed the game forever. While Bean's famous early 2000s team never won a World Series, multiple 100-win seasons and a new record for the longest winning streak got the attention of teams across the MLB, all while on one of the league's lowest payrolls. Most people know Bean's story as it was popularized in the book and later in the movie Moneyball. The machine learning techniques that were used to algorithmically determine a player's value were light years ahead of the archaic methods that have been used in baseball up to that point. In healthcare, we are overdue for a Moneyball revolution. The shift towards value-based payment has made it clear that our system needs to do a better job in generating outcomes that matter to patients, a positive healthcare experience, improved health, and good quality of life. And many of our conventions and delivering care come from an era when healthcare was delivered primarily by doctors and nurses with elite training whose success depended mostly on content expertise. That paradigm is now outdated and we now know that social, behavioral, and relational factors like social support, lifestyle, diet, and a patient's relationship with their healthcare team are all critical drivers of health. And a key component to this value-based transformation in healthcare is artificial intelligence. Without AI, medicine will never advance to a state where the totality of a patient's data can be used to find predictive signals that will lead to enhanced treatment and population health interventions to improve health outcomes. The transition to artificial intelligence and deep learning in healthcare will not come easily. It wasn't until the Oakland A's were sold to a more frugal ownership group that there was enough financial pressure to make changes to the status quo. Change usually only occurs when the pain of the status quo rises to a level greater than the discomfort of making a change. And in healthcare, we are now at this critical juncture. 
We are in a race to make value work in order to remain economically competitive in a global marketplace. I couldn't be more excited to let our listeners know about this week's guest. Today, you'll be hearing from Andrew I, who will be talking about AI. Andrew's the founder and CEO of Closed Loop AI, the recently announced winner of the CMS Artificial Intelligence Health Outcomes Challenge. Andrew I's executive and entrepreneurial experience spans over 20 years in business to consumer and business to business for startups and Fortune 500 companies. Andrew founded and sold three technology companies and is an expert in digital health transformation and predictive modeling for population health. Get ready to learn what you need to know about the next Moneyball, AI and value-based care. Andrew, I welcome to Race to Value. It's been a while since we last connected. It's good to hear your voice, man. Hey, Eric. Good to hear you as well. Thanks for having me. Well, Andrew, you and I initially met in December 2018, and I immediately became enamored by your approach to AI-based predictive analytics for value-based care. And having worked with Closed Loop as a client with Genesis Physicians Group in Dallas, I learned so much about the power of AI in healthcare, and I couldn't be happier to see the run that you guys are on right now. I mean, last year, Closed Loop received top performer status in the 2020 class report, and just last month, Closed Loop found out it won the CMS AI Challenge. So congratulations, Andrew, on all this great success. We're really big fans of Closed Loop here at the ACLC. Well, thanks, Eric. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a fun last 12 months, that's for sure. I, I think you put it well. I think we've been on a roll. Well, Andrew, I thought a great place to start our conversation today would be to, to discuss the founding of Closed Loop. As an entrepreneur, You've had a great track record of success before Closed Loop, having started three other technology companies. Your prior companies weren't in the healthcare space, but as I understand, you were motivated to start Closed Loop because you saw firsthand how broken healthcare was when your young daughter was dealing with a rare condition of autoimmune hepatitis. And she was just weeks away from needing a liver transplant. And you recognized during that ordeal the powerful implications that AI could have in predicting rare diseases, as well as driving treatment interventions for patients with common chronic conditions. Andrew, can you describe this personal experience with the healthcare system and how you were inspired to create a next-generation predictive analytics platform that leverages the latest in AI and machine learning technologies? Yeah, thanks, Eric. I share that story about my daughter from time to time, and it's oddly enough, that's not why we started the company. You know, the real backstory and origin story, I started the company with my co-founder, Dave DiCaprio, who'd been in kind of predictive analytics and machine learning for healthcare for 15 years, dating all the way back kind of to the beginnings of the Human Genome Project. You know, the real reason that I started down this path in health IT and, and predictive analytics for healthcare was because my co-founder made me do it. I wanted to work with Dave. We'd known each other for 20 years, and that's how I got roped in. But, you know, the real frying pan moment for me, as I, I like to refer to it, the why was I supposed to do this? Not why did I start, but why am I supposed to do this? It really did come during that experience with my daughter. Dave and I were only three to six months into this thing, and it was just the two of us, right? It was two guys with this idea. And that's when Kelly got really sick, as you mentioned. She was just a couple weeks away from needing a liver transplant. We had taken her to the gastroenterologist here at Dell Children's in Austin, and it was test and wait, test and wait, test and wait. Uh, not unlike a lot of parents go through in kind of these rare disease cases, you're kind of on this diagnostic odyssey. And you know, the, the real epiphany for me was at no point during that process 
did anyone say, hey, let's get a download of all your medical records. Let's get a download of all of your family's medical records. And can we maybe do a little better at guessing what the right cause might be? Our family has a history of autoimmune diseases with Crohn's disease, celiac disease, and we knew these things were related. And yet there was no kind of precision to the process of figuring out what was right for Kelly. We were one of the lucky ones in cases of autoimmune hepatitis in the United States, 50% of the time when kids get a liver transplant, doctors don't know why. There's never a diagnosis and you end up with a liver transplant. And in 15% of those cases, they never even test for autoimmune hepatitis. We could have ended up, if Kelly just gotten a little sicker, a little faster, we could have ended up with a liver transplant when the right answer was just take some prednisone. And that's not a failure of the medical community. It's just, it, we had amazing care at Dell Children's, but there is an opportunity to do better and to leverage all of the information available, not to do kind of the, the best thing for the average patient, but the best thing for this patient, right? In that case, it was, you know, my little girl. Thanks for sharing that story. It's so compelling and paints such an important picture of why AI is critical for personal healthcare delivery. So Andrew, Eric mentioned your win, and I just want to talk a little bit more about that. On April 30th, 2021, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services announced that closed-loop AI was the winner of the Artificial Intelligence Health Outcomes Challenge, the largest healthcare-focused AI challenge in history. This $1.6 million contest initially launched in March 2019, with more than 300 entrants representing the world's leading technology, healthcare, and pharmaceutical innovators. And your small startup company beat out the world's leading technology, healthcare, and pharmaceutical organizations. I mean, we're talking the likes of IBM, Mayo Clinic, Geisinger, Jefferson Health, Merck, Accenture, and Deloitte. The ultimate goal of the challenge was for innovators to demonstrate how artificial intelligence tools such as deep learning and neural networks can be used to predict unplanned hospital and skilled nursing facility admissions and adverse events for potential use by the Innovation Center in testing innovative payment and service delivery models. The magnitude of the win cannot be overstated. And Seema Verma even talked about how your company and the other finalists represented the finest the AI community has to offer. Can you walk us through the experience of competing in the CMS AI Health Outcomes Challenge? What did you learn during the process and how will this win better position closed loop as an industry leader in delivering explainable AI solutions that clinicians trust to predict health outcomes, target scarce resources, and keep their patients healthy? Well, Dan, you hit on a lot of the key points about the contest. This was supposed to be a one-year contest. And as you said, CMS really set out to focus on two things. One was kind of, yes, kind of accuracy in predictive modeling, um, which of course is always important. But when you look at kind of machine learning contests as a whole, often they're over-focused on just accuracy. And you see in Kaggle contests and this sort of thing, you know, the top team beats the second place team by 0.001%. And in the real world, that little eek of accuracy isn't always that practically applicable. I think CMS was really smart to focus on this idea of AI physicians or clinicians trust. The reason that's so important is when you look at artificial intelligence in healthcare, algorithms never saved anybody's life, right? At the end of the day, it's a physician, it's a nurse, it's a care manager, it's a care coordinator that is ultimately responsible for improving outcomes. Now, algorithms in population health or operations or any of these areas, 
we can certainly do a better job of allocating scarce resources. Computers are really good at looking at hundreds of thousands of patients every day where we can't do that many manual chart reviews and, and surfacing the people we should be paying attention to. But at the end of the day, you know, we like to say our job is to predict the future so that you can change it. You being clinicians, being doctors, nurses, care managers, nurse navigators, and so forth. And so as far as kind of the, the point, I think that's really where CMS got it right, that ultimately it's physicians that impact change, and it's our job to help target them at the people who most need their help, who can most be benefited. So as far as the journey and kind of what did this process look like, I mentioned, you know, this started off as a one-year contest. Obviously, COVID derailed that and slowed things down. It was really interesting to kind of go through this process over that two-year period. Not only did we have kind of COVID-19 that, that paused things, and we as a company turned our attention to COVID specifically, releasing an open source COVID vulnerability index, C19 index, as we called it, which was used by over 10 million patients nationally. We took some of that learning and applied it to the CMS challenge. And then here in Texas, we're based in Austin, Texas, and we got the worst winter storm in history. And so you know, a little bit of the war stories from the trenches, three days before the submissions due, I'm sitting in the front of my car you know, at the end of the road because we can't even drive out because we don't have ice trucks here in Austin. And so you know, there's no power in the house for six days. And I've got my cell phone and a laptop in the front seat trying to win this contest. And that was true of most of our team based here in Austin. So with those war stories to the side, you ask kind of what were some of the lessons learned and this really was a forcing factor for us. When we first started the contest, we titled our submission, Closed Loop AI, Born to Win the CMS AI for Outcomes Challenge. And the reason that we kind of felt like we were, we were meant to win this thing from the beginning is everything CMS was asking for was the company we'd been building for the last three years. That was everything from kind of you know, being able to quickly build a portfolio of predictive models based on kind of data that was just shared with us to making those predictions highly explainable to clinicians. But this was a real forcing factor. It really made us double down on explainability. We did 14 different versions of our clinician-facing report, what we ultimately ended up calling our patient health forecast. 14 different iterations of that report, 30 different clinicians who were a part of that review process, over 200 hours of iterating with those clinicians and saying, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? Does this make sense to you? And is this helpful? Is this useful? Um, and all of that clinician feedback from doctors, nurses, care coordinators, and so forth was instrumental in really kind of building an interface to those predictions that really made them valuable and, and led them to trust those interfaces. I knew we were on the right track when finally the feedback we started getting was I wish this button was blue instead of gray. And I said, okay, I think we're there now. I think we've got something that folks are going to like. So yeah, it was a wonderful contest. And, and, and we are certainly humbled to have won, as you mentioned, amongst a, a crowd of, we felt like David in a field of Goliaths, but at the same time, we knew we were well positioned to win this. Well, Andrew, it's so awesome to hear you say that because I was thinking all along, you guys were built to win that contest. And I remember when we, we were working together two years ago when that contest was first announced. And I remember talking to my contact at Closed Loop and just knowing how focused you guys were on winning that contest. And it's really, really cool to see it happen. And the explainability part is really the core of how you guys approach AI. And that's what I really liked about how CMS approached the AI Health Outcomes Challenge 
they weren't looking exactly just for the world's best algorithm and predicting admissions and sniff admits and adverse events. I mean, sure, they wanted the AI that was accurate, but most importantly, it had to be explainable. I mean, CMS realizes that it's not enough to have predictive models to just be accurate. They want AI that providers will actually trust so that the industry can rally behind it, which will in turn accelerate the industry transition of value-based care. And it does seem like that's one of the main barriers to adopting AI for hospitals and clinicians right now. It's their concern about the black box and how difficult it is to trust the results and some of the other algorithms that are out there. I wanted, Andrew, for you to discuss a little bit about this new type of algorithm called explainable AI, XAI, and how it can be more readily understood by humans. I mean, how does closed loop approach this issue of explainability and the design of its machine learning algorithms? And lastly, what would you tell ACO executive listeners out there that are still using the rule-based approaches like LACE scores for predicting readmissions? What would you tell them in terms of looking more at machine learning and XAI-based algorithms to gain trust in those approaches for predictive analysis and population health? One of the first things that you hit on is kind of like, why is explainable AI necessary? And kind of how is this different than the last generation of kind of algorithms or, or rules-based approaches, LACE, as you mentioned, or, or some of the kind of commercially available groupers or, or risk stratification tools? And I think there's two problems. One, early in kind of the artificial intelligence maturity cycle, there was a lot of press attention around this idea of black box models and that these deep learning models are highly highly accurate, but not very explainable, right? Or you, you can't tell why they made the decisions that they did. And that was true at the time. Since then, there have been many techniques that have kind of developed to unpack which of those variables that were used in a given predictive model ended up being most impactful for that predictive model. And some of this is available in the open source community, but we've actually commercialized technology on top of that, right? To actually be able to pull out, out of the 2000 features or variables that we put into a predictive model, which ones ended up mattering most at kind of a population level? So you can validate and say, yeah, that makes sense. If I'm trying to predict fall related injuries, frailty is probably a pretty important factor. And so you can see which factors mattered most, most often. You can also do that at an individual patient level. So when you get that individual patient prediction, you can say, which of these variables were important in flagging this patient as high risk for whatever your outcome is, whether that's a fall-related injury, you know, development of a chronic disease, avoidable admission, whatever your use case. So you know, the first piece was just kind of the evolution of the technology in the world of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And, and that's here now, right? And so all of those arguments from three or four or five years ago, those are just squashed, but everybody hasn't caught up with it because AI is no longer a black box, isn't as impressive a headline as AI is a black box and everybody should be scared of it. So the first problem was technology. The second problem was business model. So if you look at kind of those rules-based approaches or some of these kind of algorithms that were available five, 10 years ago, their whole intellectual property was wrapped up in their secret sauce for the algorithm. And so unpacking that and telling you exactly why someone was flagged as high risk meant giving you the recipe to their algorithm. They put a lot of capital into building some proprietary algorithm and they didn't want to show anybody how it worked. And that resulted in a whole lot of problems. One is physician trust, two is bias. 
And we see this in, in many of the criticisms that came out for some of these kind of high profile algorithms where because they weren't willing to share exactly how those algorithms work, now you can't have external validation of whether or not those algorithms are biased or unfair. So the change now, and kind of the, the focus for us here at Closed Loop, we like to say we're not building models, we're building a machine that builds models, right? And one of the advantages of that is for every predictive model we create, we can show you exactly which variables were used, exactly which ones were most impactful, and guess what? Because we can build those models so inexpensively, we can take a individual population in a given area and train on just their population. This idea that there's one algorithm that's best for everybody in the country, it's a total fallacy because each organization has a unique footprint of available data. They've got a unique population. They've got unique interventions that are available to them. And so when you're trying to improve quality and drive down the total cost of care, being able to quickly create new predictive models that are trained on your population that use all the data you have available, that's really key to kind of winning in value-based care. But this explainability piece, again, the big advantage that you get with explainability, physician trust, being able to show exactly why did I flag someone as high risk for a given event, that allows you to get a feedback loop from those clinicians where they can tell you, actually, these patients that you're showing me, I don't want to see patients like this because I understand why they were flagged as high risk, but I don't view them as being terribly impactable. And so you can get these feedback loops. When you've got a black box, you can't get that feedback loop. And what we see with our customers is it leads to better interventions. If I just hand somebody a patient and say, hey, Andrew's high risk. Well, okay, great. But if I hand, hand someone a patient and say, hey, Andrew's high risk and here's why. He's had two prior admissions. Here's the medications that he's on. Here are kind of the prior diagnoses that I've seen. Well, now all of a sudden, my care team is more informed. They've had some of that information surfaced and they can have more effective conversations, more effective interventions. So as you point out, Eric, you know, explainability is absolutely the key. It's important in lots of areas, but in healthcare in particular, this is absolutely critical to the future of value-based care and the adoption of artificial intelligence. Andrew, you brought up this idea of physician's trust, and I want to dive into this a little further. Listening to you talk and listening to thinking about AI, one can't help but see how a lot of physicians might be paranoid about the machines taking over, where their work will be eventually outsourced to algorithms and other artificial tools that do the clinical reasoning for them. In the book, The Innovator's Prescription by Clayton Christensen, he describes this landscape of medicine as evolving from one of intuitive guesswork and pattern recognition to one that becomes this more precise around targeted medicine, the care that's well-suited for automation and artificial intelligence. And perhaps unless you're a radiologist, physicians should be more readily embracing this new AI revolution, especially since the amount of medical knowledge, and this is incredible, it doubles every 73 days. So physicians only have so much processing capability in their own human brains. And additionally, in value-based care, an organization has only so many resources to apply to care management and social determinants of health assistance. So AI seems to be really the only solution for targeting interventions to the right patients so the impacts can be made to lower total cost of care. Andrew, can you do a myth buster for us on the topic? Should doctors really fear extinction of their jobs because of AI? Is there any correlation between the use of predictive analytics in population health 
and this threatening scenario of having driverless cars, so to speak, in the profession of medicine? Daniel, you gave a great overview there. In some ways, I don't know if I could say it better myself. I think you hit on the key point, right? There are certain areas of medicine where we have humans that are acting like robots, right? And you can think of radiology as one of those examples where at least you know, drastically improved efficiency, where we're leveraging physicians to kind of handle exception cases is likely the path there. When we talk about population health, we talk about kind of most areas of medicine. There's a great quote, and I, I apologize, I can't attribute it, but I had heard it put this way. If you're a doctor, should you be worried about being replaced by a robot? No. But if you're a doctor who's not adopting artificial intelligence, you should be worried about being replaced by a doctor who will. And it's for the reasons that you just highlighted. The information is now too big to know. There is too much valuable information available on all of us as patients that can be used in better predicting two key questions, right? It's what's wrong with me and what's the best path of, of action to kind of help me get better. And so when you step back and think about kind of physician paranoia, again, I think this is an overblown position. I don't find a lot of doctors saying, gosh, I'm really scared about better math. Uh, gosh, I really don't want you to use better math to find the top three to 5% of patients that we should be enrolling in care management or enrolling in our intervention programs. I never get that pushback. We get a lot of questions about, hey, I wanna make sure this algorithm is working correctly. I wanna have some insight into how this works. But this idea of kind of physicians being paranoid about being replaced, that's not been our experience. Eric had mentioned earlier, uh, Genesis Physician Group there in Dallas, Fort Worth. Dr. Jim Walton, who's the CEO there at Genesis Physicians Group, he put this really well. He said, doctors are trained to recognize patterns and kind of tell stories. And he said, you know, when I see a patient, ultimately what they, what they end up doing is often looking at a few key data points, a prior diagnosis, what medications is a person on, and they instantly pattern match. And that's really useful. But there's an opportunity to augment that with a lot more information than you can do in a 10-minute chart review. And so I think the opportunity that AI presents is to look back over 10 years of health history and surface some insights and allow physicians to pattern match on those surfaced insights in addition to the conversations that they're having one-on-one -on -one with those patients. And so, you know, this is never about AI versus physicians. This is about AI plus physicians. And I don't know about you, but there's going to come a point in time where I'm going to choose my doctor based on whether or not they use all of the available information to make better decisions about me. I mean, going back to my daughter's case, you fast forward five, 10 years in the future, I'm not gonna take my child to a doctor who can't use all of her available health history to inform better decisions about her care. We expect Facebook and Google to do this every day. We expect them to use all of our prior search history, all of the information available that we've ever given them with every little click to make better recommendations for search, to, to give us better ads. That same level of intelligence is coming to healthcare and that is gonna result in better outcomes and lower costs. Well, Andrew, I wanted to also explore this topic of algorithmic bias and fairness. And the industry right now is deeply introspective right now and realizing that routine medical practice continues to treat black and brown patients differently than white patients. And this must be changed if we are to truly transform our healthcare system and improve outcomes for all. And as we look to ensure health equity, there's this growing concern around AI 
machine learning, data science, and the risk of automation reinforcing existing biases that through the, the use of algorithms. And there's this one research study from a couple of years ago, and they showed that an algorithm that was used to identify eligibility for care management programs reduced the number of Black patients identified for extra care by more than half. And that particular algorithm detected patient risk by assessing the amount of healthcare dollars spent on the patient. And current health disparities and equities were skewing those risk assessments to favor white patients who are in many cases healthier. In that particular example, just removing that algorithmic bias would have resulted in a near 30% rise in Black patients receiving additional services. And there was another study just published last month in JAMA Psychiatry, where researchers from, from Kaiser Permanente found that suicide risk prediction models that perform well in the general population may not be as accurate for Black, American Indian, and Alaska Native people, potentially worsening ethnic and racial disparities. So Andrew, I just wanted to ask you, like, how can we develop predictive AI and population health that minimizes this algorithmic bias and ensures that the models are fair across all socioeconomic demographics and social classes. Yeah. So Eric, the study that you just mentioned was out of the University of Chicago. And th this is such an important topic that needs to be addressed more openly. Um, you know, the CMS challenge, just to go back to that, Senator Booker's office, Senator Cory Booker wrote a letter to CMS during this contest. So over the course of this two-year period and ask CMS explicitly in this contest to address bias and fairness in predictive algorithms and to address that more broadly within CMS. And that really shined a light on how important this issue is and how much this has been ignored in the past. And I go back to this question of explainability. And if you read that paper from the University of Chicago, one of the things that they highlight, the biggest challenge is these black box algorithms, this kind of generation of I'm not going to tell you how this thing works, but trust me, these are the high risk patients. And the challenge with that is when you have a black box algorithm, you can't go in and now look for those factors of race or socioeconomic status or geographic location or gender, and you can't unpack them and see how they're being weighted. So this proprietary black box algorithm, again, it's a business model problem that disallows for external validation or review of those algorithms. So as a part of the CMS challenge, we actually partnered with the University of Chicago. I'd point folks to Tufts University as well, who's done some great work, although less cited, in this same area, talking about not only algorithmic bias, but also fairness. And there's a nuanced problem here. Algorithmic bias, you can think of as, is the math disproportionately affecting a given group? And that was, was pointed out in the Chicago paper. And really the issue there in, in the technical jargon is called label choice bias. And the mistake that was made was using cost as a proxy for health. The people who are more expensive must be more unhealthy. Well, that's not actually true. And so the first piece in solving that problem is to choose a target variable or a label that is actually tied to the thing you're trying to avoid or trying to impact. So you might think about using something like avoidable hospitalizations as the thing you're trying to predict rather than cost. And that can help to address some of these issues of, think of it as mathematical bias. In that case, the algorithms were mathematically favoring white patients over black. Now, the second category, it is possible to actually eliminate all of that mathematical bias from an algorithm 
and still end up with a result that you don't like. Meaning that even though the math is correct, maybe we feel like we should be allocating more resources to an underserved population. Tufts University did a great job of kind of differentiating between algorithmic bias, which is all about math, and fairness, which is all about policy. So even if the math is, is equally fair to all groups, what policy decisions do we want to make? And again, the only way that you can shine a light and even have this conversation around how do we want to equitably distribute resources is to unpack these black boxes and explain exactly how the predictions are being made and share how are resources being recommended to be distributed by the algorithm across different groups, whether that's ethnic groups, gender groups, socioeconomic groups. And so these two issues are so intertwined. You can't have unbiased algorithm. You can't have a fair algorithm unless it's explainable. Andrew, sometimes it seems to me that data-driven approaches in population health could succumb to this idea of perfection being the enemy of good. For example, in repeated surveys of ACO executives, the lack of access to longitudinal health data and the time lag in receiving claims data are often the most frequently cited barriers to success in managing risk in alternative payment models. And last year, we had Cheryl Lulius from Medical Home Network on our show. We talked about their collaboration with Closed Loop. In the MHN case study that was written, I was encouraged to see how they're able to start with a modest data baseline and pursue a more robust layered approach over time where they augmented their model with claims, ADTs, prescription data, and health risk assessments to identify unmet social needs. Can you speak to this inferiority complex that healthcare organizations have with data shaming and illustrate how you're able to work with organizations to pull predictive signals out of their messy data? Dan, I'm, I think you just violated my copyright. Data shaming is a term I coined a couple of years ago <laughs> as a joke. You know, I used to talk about this as one of the most common complaints we hear from folks, oh, we can't really do predictive analytics. We can't really do machine learning. We can't do artificial intelligence because our data is too messy. You don't know us, Andrew. Our data is so messy. The reality is, yes, healthcare data is messy, right? You've got claims data coming in from 10 different sources and, and none of it's in a common format. You've got prescription data coming in from different sources. You've got prescription data for some of your population, but not for the other. So yes, it is messy. But underlying that messy data are standardized codes. You've got ICD-10 diagnosis and procedure codes across the industry. You've got drug codes across the industry. You've got lab values in the form of LOINC codes across the industry. And so there is this underlying kind of normalized layer that if you can be smart about how to extract that data, means that you can actually find this commonality across all of it. But you, you touched on something with, with Medical Home Network and, and Cheryl's work there. The great work they're doing in the Medicaid population there in Chicago at Medical Home Network, you know, really they were focused on social determinants of health. And Cheryl's team had kind of pioneered the collection and use of patient level social determinants of health data, going out and actually doing the hard work. Are you having problems with food insecurity? Are you having problems with housing? And a, a number of other kind of patient level data points that they were collecting. They were already at the forefront of identifying and addressing social determinants of health. The opportunity that we presented and, and our work together at Medical Home Network was, as you said, to take this layered data approach and say, hey, not only can we use that social determinants of health data, but what if we bring in this claims data that you have as well? We know it's 90 days delayed. 
but we can still see this diagnosis history. We can still see so many data points in terms of diagnosis, procedures, admissions, and so forth over time. And that can tell us a lot about who really needs our help the most. And then we're able to incorporate things like ADT feeds. So where claims data may be very robust and, and comprehensive, albeit 90 days delayed, now if we augment that with you know up-to-the-day ADT feeds, right, admission, discharge, and transfer feeds, and we can now pull in that data as well, right? Now we're getting more timely information to augment kind of this comprehensive information we have in the form of claims. And so what we saw with Medical Home Network and what we see with each of our customers is if you take this layered data approach, let's get off the ground and running with whatever data is readily available. That might be claims data, it might be EMR data, but let's see if we build a predictive model, can we do a better job of predicting the outcomes that we're interested in versus your legacy stratification approach, whether that's a rules-based approach or a LACE score or some grouper. And I'll tell you, 10 times out of 10, we are going to find that we can more accurately predict future health events, no matter what your starting point is for data. But the opportunity to then iterate on that algorithm over time, as you get access to more data, right? As you fold in that ADT feed, as you fold in that EMR data that you might have on a, a certain portion of your population, right? The ability to fold those in and take advantage of all the data that you do have, that is really the magic of having a, a platform that allows you to iterate over time. One of the things I always caution people, I get a lot of questions like, ah, oh, you know, should we go license this commercial data? Should we go out and, and figure out what kind of candy bars people are buying at CVS? Won't that tell us more about people's health? And my advice is always, boy, until you've really squeezed all of the predictive signal out of the data you do have, maybe you shouldn't be shopping for data that you don't have because there's a lot of overlap and you're going to end up spending a lot of money on data that has predictive signal that you already had, right, within your four walls. And so I think the way we think about that, again, the data shaming tag was kind of this idea that your real world healthcare data is beautiful and useful just the way it is. I just encourage folks to try and and get as much signal as they can out of the data they have today. Well, Andrew, I wanted to ask you more about model accuracy and some of these algorithms. And I'm a little embarrassed to say, but as an ACO executive, I was always intimidated by the statistics used to communicate the accuracy of predictive models for high-risk care management. I mean, I'd look at these vendor-produced ROC analyses, and they show me this area under the curve with a C-statistic of near 1.0, and I'm being told this model is virtually perfect. And as a healthcare executive, I wasn't trained as a data scientist or a statistician, and I always felt ill-equipped to call BS on the vendor touting, you know, such amazing accuracy sometimes. And Andrew, I wanted to ask you just how should ACOs and other risk-bearing entities be validating the accuracy of their predictive algorithms? Is there a simplified way to do this with receiver operator characteristic curve or outcome capture curve analysis? What do our executive listeners need to know about statistical validation so that they're confident that the AI they purchase is actually providing an accurate prediction? Sure. I'll give you a couple pieces there. So first, let's kind of take a, a layman's tour of some of the, the terms that get thrown around, right? So rock curves, area under the curve and ROC curves. This is kind of the de facto standard that's used for kind of measuring accuracy and machine learning problems and a certain class of machine learning problems. So you'll see this out there a lot, these ROC curves. If you're looking at an ROC curve, the easiest way to simplify it is there's a, you can think of a dotted line that goes from kind of the, the bottom left corner straight up at a 45 degree angle to the top right corner. That's a coin flip line. 
flip it and you call it in the air, you're gonna get the answer right 50% of the time. If the line is anywhere up and to the left of that dotted line, that's the model performing better than random chance at correctly predicting the outcome. So that's kind of how to read a rock curve, but this isn't important. The data scientists and your analytics team can get together and make sure that that model is at least reasonably accurate for your purposes. Does it have a higher ROC than maybe your incumbent model or your rules-based approach? So it's a good starting point for kind of comparing two models. But you also have to think about the percent capture, and we've published on this before, where in many use cases, you don't care how accurate the model is across the population because you're only going to use the model for the top three to five percent. And so it's possible to have a highly accurate model overall that's really bad at the first three to 5% of people. And so if you're going to intervene on the top three to 5% for population health type use cases, what you really want to think about is within the top three to 5% of my population, how many times am I correctly predicting that someone's going to have a negative event? So for example, 30-day readmissions. If I've got 100,000 patients, Top 5%, that's 5,000 patients. If I'm going to do 5,000 interventions, how many times am I going and intervening on someone who really would have been readmitted but for my intervention? So I'd encourage people to think beyond ROC curves and focus on, we call this metric percent capture. Um, this was actually one of the metrics used in the CMS challenge. They referred to it as sensitivity at low alert rates. But we're super in the weeds with all of these statistics. The more important question is not how accurate is this model? The most important question is, is this model predicting the thing I wanted to in the first place? It's really easy for me to show you a highly accurate model that isn't actually useful for you. The most important thing is to pick the right problem. Let me give you a tangible example. And we were working with a health system that was focused actually on social determinants of health and interventions for a Medicaid population. And we had worked with their analytics team for a few months to build a model and validate all the statistics. And and the analytics team was over the moon. We had this really accurate model and they were really excited about it. And we were predicting folks who are most likely to have adverse events. And we we're going to use that model to enroll people in care management. And then we took those results and we went to the care team and we've been kind of siloed for the beginning. We had hoped to be involved with these folks a little earlier, but we've been siloed to, to talk with just the analytics team to start. We go to the business unit and we're talking to these folks in the population health, the care coordination team, and they look at the explainability report. And they said, Andrew, why are you telling us that cancer patients are likely to have adverse events? To which we responded, well, because they are likely to have adverse events. And they said, yeah, but our interventions have nothing to do with oncology. We're not actually out trying to help that particular population. That's a different group that focuses on that. And so we were asking the wrong question. We were trying to predict any adverse events because that's what the analytics team had asked us to do. And so we were highly accurate at the wrong question. Now, the good news is if you're using a platform for machine learning, then that's as simple as changing the predicted endpoint. And so we quickly, this is an oversimplification, but we say, let's look for adverse events except cancer, because that's not what this particular care team is focused on intervening on. And so we can retrain a model and now we can give them results that are more actionable for them. So the big takeaway at the executive level is don't let somebody just talk to you about how accurate their models are, because those are vanity metrics. Yes, accuracy is important, but actually asking the right question is far more important. Andrew, I want to circle back to something you mentioned earlier about these predictive models and how they don't transform care delivery by themselves. Other than the upfront data wrangling, we've got the last mile of deployment and monitoring. 
that's one of the biggest challenges with artificial intelligence. I'm, so I'm interested to hear how closed loop partners with clients to ensure successful integration of predictive modeling in the workflow of the provider and the population health team. Yeah, absolutely. So we had talked a little bit before about how do you know that the models are accurate? And how do you think about this? Oftentimes what happens when you're kind of looking at a new machine learning problem or project is you start off by building a first model and then running a retrospective test. So you say for this 20% of the population, I'm going to ignore the answers. I'm going to make predictions and I'm going to see how accurate my results were. But those retrospective tests need to be supported by prospective analysis. So we need to actually roll these models out and make sure that if we thought we were going to get it right 82% of the time, that we're actually seeing in the real world that we are correctly predicting the outcome 82% of the time. And so there's this kind of process of once you deploy a model, meaning you make it available to take in new data, produce new predictions or new insights every day, and then you want to monitor that those insights or those predictions are as accurate in the real world as they were in the lab, as they were when you were testing. So that's the first piece is kind of predicted versus actual accuracy. There's another issue that comes up in, in the technical world. You know, you talk about this as feature drift. Really what that means is I'm gonna use a collection of historical data and I'm gonna learn the patterns in that data with machine learning. And I'm gonna use those patterns to predict future outcomes. But what happens if the data that I'm getting in today doesn't look like the data that I got in yesterday. A great example of this is what if I've got a health system and now I acquire a new practice, right? And that practice, that population looks a little different than my traditional population. Well, guess what? I trained on my traditional population and now I'm using this algorithm that was trained on population A to predict on population B and population B looks different. So the key is to be able to monitor for those changes in the input values. So you can think of things like, historically, I haven't had a large asthma population, but now all of a sudden I get in new patients and I've got this big, you know, kind of concentration of asthma patients. Well, I'm going to want to either create a new model for that population specifically trained on their history, or I'm going to want to retrain my overall model, meaning let's go look at the patterns in the new data as well. And we can redeploy that model. This happens all the time, you know, particularly kind of given how dynamic the healthcare system is and you know, how many acquisitions are happening and how many new models are being rolled out, new models of care and so forth. Those are two of the big issues kind of when we talk about what, what people refer to as ML ops. How do I take this model that was trained, make it available to make new predictions every day, validate that, I've, that I'm getting the accuracy I expected, validate that the inputs that I'm seeing to that model match the inputs that I've seen previously. You know, there's a whole other category of problems that are coming down the pipe now that folks aren't even thinking about, which is imagine now that you've been using artificial intelligence or machine learning for a year or two years, and you've been making predictions and, and you're really nailing it. And then your boss shows up and says, tell me why we flagged Eric as high risk six months ago. And now you've got this problem of auditability and being able to roll back and say, well, gosh, yes, Eric was flagged as high risk on this day. And why was that? There's a new challenge that's emerging, which is persistence of this information. You've got to be able to make these predictions every day and then record and save what was the rationale that went into those predictions on any given day. And so this is becoming an issue in ML ops as well. Obviously, we've thought a lot about this, all of what I've just described from kind of 
feature drift to predicted versus actual accuracy to auditability and being able to go back and look at prior predictions. All of that is kind of built into the closed loop platform. But these are some of the big topics that folks are really having to wrestle with as they take these machine learning models out of the lab and kind of into the real world. Well, Andrew, it certainly seems that AI is now the fastest growing frontier in medicine and the regulatory framework for AI is still unfolding. And the FDA wants to regulate this emerging technology to prevent unintended consequences such as incorrect diagnosis, unnecessary treatment, or exacerbation of racial disparities. And for predictive algorithms used for population health, how should regulatory assessments approach those? Should we treat that type of AI less like a device and more like a human by asking it a set of questions. What is your opinion on how we should best regulate predictive models used in population health going forward? This question comes up a lot. And and just to kind of break it down in, in broad strokes, and what is the FDA focused on and why, right? When it comes to artificial intelligence and machine learning and healthcare, the FDA is primarily focused on what they refer to as software as a medical device. And so you can think of that and many of the issues that come up around kind of software as a medical device or around kind of testing and validation. So when we talk about cases like radiology, if I'm going to take a doctor out of the loop and replace it with just an algorithm, then there are specific concerns that we need to kind of focus on there. And that's been the the core area of focus for the FDA. The next level of scrutiny or, or, or consideration is around questions related to clinical decision support what are the right prescriptions and what's the right dosage or what are the clinical guidelines that are appropriate for a given circumstance? And so clinical decision support is kind of that next level. When we get to population health, I think how these algorithms are monitored is partially a question of regulation and that may or may not fall under the purview of the FDA, right? If you look at Senator Booker's proposed legislation around bias and algorithms generally, that goes above and beyond the Food and Drug Administration, because there are implications in mortgage lending. There are implications in parole. My opinion on this is that regulation is appropriate and is really necessary for artificial intelligence, particularly as it relates to these questions of of health equity and of racial concerns and gender concerns broadly. And I think population health is more akin to some of those questions than it is necessarily to the, the same scrutiny that FDA would put on a product that is removing a physician from a given workflow. Andrew, I I thought a great way to wrap up our conversation today would be to talk about how AI is essentially becoming table stakes in healthcare. And it couldn't be more readily apparent than in reading the headlines where Google struck a deal with HCA to develop healthcare algorithms to improve medical care. And AI in healthcare is definitely the next money ball opportunity. And the industry is ripe for this innovative disruption. So as we wrap up our conversation today, Andrew, I want to know your perspective on what does the future look like for AI in healthcare? Will we see more accurate models due to democratization of health data and due to enhanced EHR interoperability? Will patient data from wearables and blue button 2.0 APIs create more data liquidity and patient engagement? Will deep learning open up new horizons in personalized medicine to reach its full potential in population health and help us win this race to value? With that, I'd love to hear your final thoughts on big data futurism as we end up today. Well, my short answer, Dan, to your questions would be yes, all of the above. The big opportunities that I see, we've got this perfect storm of opportunity for AI applied to healthcare. 
we've got more data than ever, as you mentioned, kind of this compounding of health data available. And that's before we're even kind of unlocking the opportunities around wearables, home devices, genetic information. So this is the end of kind of this, this exponential rise in health data. We're nowhere close to the end. All of that information becomes potentially useful in predicting health outcomes. Right now, folks are focused on the top 25 to 50 use cases. Let's predict who's going to have an avoidable admission. Let's predict who's going to develop diabetes. Let's predict who has undiagnosed CKD. Who's going to have a fall-related injury? Who's going to use the ER rather than going to see their primary care physician? And those are appropriate to focus on because those are where the big needle movers are right now. But the long-term opportunity, where does this all really go? The long-term opportunity is not just the top 50 use cases. It's the long tail. It's all of the use cases, because for those of us that maybe aren't in that top 5% of patients that are causing or suffering from you know, so much of, you know, the costs that are in the system today, we want this technology too. I want this technology for my daughter, but there's only 2000 people a year diagnosed with autoimmune hepatitis. So if it costs $3 million to build a single predictive model, guess what? Nobody's ever going to build that autoimmune hepatitis predictor. And so the key piece here is we've got to lower the cost of asking a question. We've got to make it easier for people to build predictions around a variety of events. And as you pointed out, not only do we have more data than ever, but data liquidity is actually happening. And yes, initiatives like Blue Button and frankly, CMS is leading the charge here because what did we want from EHRs in the first place? We wanted data liquidity and we didn't get it. But now there's an existential threat for the people who have been hoarding data and they thought that was their competitive advantage. The federal government is saying, no, we are not going to allow you to hoard data. We're not gonna allow you to hoard claims data. We're not gonna allow you to hoard EHR data because we as patients and we as taxpayers demand that that data be used to drive down the total cost of care and increase quality. And so these new regulations that are coming out that are enforcing data interoperability that's another big piece of this perfect storm. And then ultimately, as you mentioned, advancements in technology around artificial intelligence, machine learning, explainability, better understandings of bias and fairness. All of this is kind of coalescing to why now, right? Why is now the opportunity? And ultimately, this shift from fee-for-service to value-based care, this is a race, right? There's a reason why you guys title the podcast as you do, because Ultimately, if you are not investing in better identifying adverse events before they happen, then you are going to be left behind. And if you look at all of the top performers in value-based care, they are all investing heavily in this area. The old rules-based approaches of five and 10 years ago, they are not precise enough and they result in wasted interventions. They result in wasted resources. And we just, we don't have the budget for that. So where do I see this all going? Right now, we're gonna be focused on accelerating value-based care by more precise application of interventions to those folks that are in that top 5%, the folks that are really chronically ill, the folks that really need our help. But where is the 10-year vision? It's what I described earlier. I'm not gonna to go to a doctor. I'm not gonna to go to a practice that can't use all of my health data in order to predict what's wrong with me and what can be done to improve my health. And that is just going to be table stakes, but we've got a little ground to cover before we get there. 
Andrew I, CEO of Closed Loop AI, thank you so much for joining us this week in the Race to Value. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Dan. Great to talk to you guys.